Turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22. Well, we are definitely living in a designer age. I mean, it seems like everything is kind of designer these days. Now, obviously, uh, something is designed by someone. However, when we talk about designer clothes or designer purses or watches or sunglasses or cars, we're speaking specifically that there is a famous designer that has done something unique, or at least they put their name on it, and we're going to pay a whole bunch of money for it because we would like to have designer clothes or a designer diaper bag or whatever, but they apparently have those, and so it's fine if you have those things. But it's just really interesting how we are kind of fascinated with specialized, unique looks, takes on a variety of things, anything from transportation to purses to shoes. In fact, in Texas, uh, we even have designer hay haulers. In fact, uh, there's a person that actually took a look at that. Uh, you know, uh, this is just a common scene you might see around here in central Texas there. And uh, you need to know that after last year's drought, hay is as good as gold down here. And this guy's probably going shopping or something like that. I don't know. But anyway, we're, we are in to designer. Now, what, we can have customized homes, but um, what does God think about designer spirituality, though? What does God think about the idea that you can take and pick and choose and basically formulate and fashion and shape your own belief system? After all, you're a free country, free individuals, do whatever you want, right? And so what does God, though, specifically think about a designer spirituality, a take-it-or-leave-it, buffet kind of style spirituality? Or we might refer to it as customized Christianity, now, I think everybody at one point starts wrestling with this. Like, I wonder, what, what does God think about this? I mean, there was just a plethora of ideas out there. There's all sorts of people that have all sorts of belief systems. They pick and choose their favorites. Uh, this is actually becoming increasingly more popular in Christianity, where people, like, pick certain things that they do like about Christ or the, or the faith, and a lot of the stuff is jettisoned or never referenced. I mean, it's just not a big deal. It's not actually even a part of their belief system or not something they think about very regularly. And what does God, though, really think about that? We don't have to wonder. In Matthew chapter 22, there is a parable that Jesus gives that brings a stinging, sharp, contrasting answer to what God really thinks about designer spirituality. As we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is given a series of parables. Each of these parables is driving home the reality that the Jewish leadership has completely missed what God intended for his people. God intended that there would be a people that would believe upon him, that would have faith in him, that it would be a vibrant faith, that it would be a faith that would go throughout the world as people would see that God is doing a unique thing through his people and he's drawing people to himself that there would be a love for God, and with this love would be a corresponding response to follow his word. The reality, they completely missed it. And Jesus starts confronting in this last week of his earthly life, before he goes to the cross, he actually starts confronting the Jewish leadership and saying, you've missed it. Now, when Jesus gives these parables, the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, the Jewish leadership, they totally knew that Jesus was speaking to them. In fact, look at verses 45 and 46 in chapter 21. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood what? He was speaking about them. 
And look at their response. Verse 46, when, when they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. You see, Jesus gave these parables. They knew exactly that he was confronting them. Now, you may have missed this, but the chief priests and the Pharisees, do you know how often they got together? Rarely. They actually despised one another. They actually thought like the chief priests were sold out to the Romans because they were all about politics and being good with, the, with Herod and company. And the Pharisees were despised by the, the chief priests because they actually had popularity among the people because they were the ones that were following all the laws and all these traditions that they made up, supposedly. But when it came to Jesus, they said, we have got a common enemy. Let's join forces. And they wanted to kill him, but they were afraid of the people because the people actually revered Jesus. Many of them were calling him a prophet. Some were saying that he was the prophet like Moses that had been prophesied that would come. Others were claiming that he was actually the Messiah, the son of David, who would indeed rescue his people from their sins. So within this context that Jesus is giving these stories, these parables, lining up spiritual truth with something that they're very familiar with. But when you come to Matthew chapter 22, you almost have to take this big pause. Because Jesus is going to lay it out in absolutely clear fashion of what has happened, what is going to happen, and what's to come. Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 1, he talks about those who are truly in right relationship with God. And there's some, par- there's some things you need to pick up about right relationship with God, as he's intended. First thing you want to know is that right relationship with God begins in, with rejoicing in God's Son. So Jesus, in the midst of this, you can see the Pharisees and these spiritual leaders of Israel, these chief priests. You just see the anger in their eyes. And Jesus then speaks to them again in parables, verse 1, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. So he says, you know, let me tell you about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is God's realm and rule and reign. And the lives of his people that one day will have a physical manifestation in this world. And he says, let me tell you about the kingdom of heaven, a very popular theme that Jesus spoke of. He says, you know, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for a son. Now, the wedding feast, that was like that was like considered the culminating celebration experience that you could ever have. Not only for the people getting married, but for the entire community. And if a king in his realm, was going to have a wedding feast for his son, this would be like the most extravagant celebration you could ever imagine. And when he talks about this wedding feast, it's interesting, in all the details that he's going to give in this parable, he never again really refers to anything about this being like a wedding feast. What he's doing, he's drawing the attention that the kingdom of heaven is like a giant celebration. It is a gala of gala events. The Pharisees never thought of the kingdom of heaven like that. They saw the kingdom of heaven as kind of like a giant courtroom in which God was going to vindicate those who are good. And he was literally going to obliterate those who are evil. And of course, everybody was evil but them. And that was kind of their mindset. When Jesus starts talking about the kingdom of heaven, it's great joy, celebration, life, like a huge party, food, festivity, warmth, fellowship, camaraderie. They're like, what? They'd never even considered such thing. And so this was what happened on a wedding feast. What would happen is that the, this, in this case, the king, he would send his servants way in advance and he would notify the people that there was going to be on a particular day and he would kind of name it 
there would be this huge celebration. A wedding feast uh, for the scale of what we're talking about here and in most Jewish families would last an entire week. Okay, you know, we're doing good for like the six hour deal. They did a whole week and you were expected, especially if it was one of a king, that you would be there for the entire week and you were going to be treated very nicely. You're going to have all sorts of food put in front of you. There'd be lots of festivities. It'd be just a great atmosphere. And so what would happen is you'd send out your servants and say, you know, on such and such a day, months from now, there is going to be this huge feast. We are invited in the case of a king and his kingdom. I mean, you you would come because he's the king for sure. And so you would say, of course, I'll be there. And, the, and, the, and then you understood that and at that particular day would be the feast you'd start preparing. However, it's not kind of like you could actually put the time because there's a lot of preparation that would take place for a feast of this nature. There's all these animals that have to be butchered. You have to get all the salads and stuff made and stuff. So what would happen is when the feast was ready, the servants would go then again into the kingdom and say, now's the time. The celebration is about to begin. The food is ready. Come. And so all the people that have said initially, okay, yeah, we're, we're coming. Absolutely. We've been planning on this. When he sends out the servants, they're going to come. And so that's, that's how wedding feasts worked. And so it kind of had this two-invitation system. Now, when he talks about it's about the son, what Jesus is doing, he's highlighting that the kingdom of heaven is all about rejoicing in God's son. If you're a part of God's kingdom, your joy has to truly be in Jesus Christ, the son of God. If you're celebrating the fact that I just like a group of people or they have good morals or I like some of the things they do in the community, you have missed it because Christianity, the kingdom of heaven, is all about Christ, the king. You've got to rejoice in God's son. But let me tell you another aspect about God's kingdom. If you're truly going to have right relationship with God, you not only have to rejoice in God's son, but you have to respond to God's call. You've got to respond to God's call. So everybody's aware of the big wedding. It's about to take place. And so sure enough, just as per typical, verse 3, he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast and they were unwilling. What? They were unwilling to come. What? All of a sudden, the story got thrown for a huge curveball because, of course, you'd come. Uh, when the people are listening to the story, they're like, what? Why, why, would, why would they not come? They said they were going to come. Of course they're coming. This is the king, after all. Of course they're going to come. They didn't come. They report back, like, you know this huge feast you got going? All Everything's ready? The people, they're not coming. They don't, they don't want to come. Now, most kings weren't known for their benevolent behavior, okay, or their attitudes toward their subjects. And so you'd fully expect, like, whoa, bad things are going to happen. But to show you the gracious nature of the king, verse 4 he actually sends the slaves out again. Look at this. He sends other slaves. Verse 4, he sent out other slaves saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat and livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding fe- feast. In fact, there's like an imperative to it. You must come. It's a command. Everything's ready. I mean, the food that he's talking about here, about fat and livestock, butchered, everything ready. I mean, oxen, calves, boy, these people never ate like this. He's saying... It is fully prepared. It is outstanding. It's awesome. And it's ready. And it's ready for you. You must come. Now, to actually not come and accept this, this is a dangerous affront. This would be actually seen almost like treason 
to not report and come in to a wedding feast for a king for his son. Basically, you're saying is the king's son's not worthy of a gift that these guests kind of felt like they didn't really approve of the marriage. And furthermore, that what they are saying by not coming is that they were no longer rendering allegiance to the king. That is how it would be perceived. The original audience would be like, whoa, 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 whoa. So how would they how are they going to respond with this? The second imperative now to come. Well, verse five. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his farm, another to his business, and the rest seized the slaves and mistreated them and killed them. Well, when Jesus is relating this story, they would be like, whoa, whoa, what, what are you talking about? You see, a representative of the king came on the authority of the king. It was as if the king himself was coming. And to go and just like, get out of here. No, we're, we're too busy. We don't want to do that. Or to mistreat a servant of the king who was sent as an ambassador or to kill one. That was like an act of war. It was seen as complete rebellion. Think of it this way. Let's say you were personally invited to come to the White House by a representative, an ambassador from the president. He goes, comes to your house and says, there's going to be a state dinner. And I know that you normally don't come to things like this, but I'd like you to be there. Really? Huh, whoa, me? Yeah, I want you to be there. And you say you're going to come. But then when you get the official notice, it's time to be here. You're like, nah, I don't think so. And you go and you beat up and you spit on the guy that came and invited you and the servant, the representative. Or you assaulted them or killed them. Could you imagine on a far grander scale, the king who is really representative of the father is announcing the rejoicing of the celebration of the son. And the people of Israel did what? Many of them just like, ah, I don't care about that. I'm, not, I'm busy. I've got my own religion. I have my self-stylized spirituality. Or worse yet, the history of Israel was to take God's messengers, his servants, his prophets, and to do what? Either ignore them or abuse them. And in many cases, they killed them. You see, what Jesus is doing, he's giving them a page out of their own history book. This is how you have treated the king and his announcements. And they're, and they're getting it. They, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the scribes, they are understanding. Like, whoa, Jesus is doing it again. He's telling a story, and this story happens to be about us and what we've done with his servants. And so Jesus goes and he tells this parable, and he tells them, you know what? They said they were too busy. It's like saying, I'm too busy to come. I've got to mow my yard, or I've got to... Uh, Check some of my emails. I've really fallen behind. You know, I'd like to come, but you know what? I got more important things. You see, there were two, with the second group of messengers, there were two primary responses. One was apathy. I just could care less. I've got more important things to do. I've got to tend my fields. You know, I've got some work to do. And the second one was aggression. You are violently opposed to God, his kingdom, and the celebration of his son. The same is true actually today. The same two responses. There are millions of people that just could care less about Jesus, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. What? Give me a break. Sundays for golf and newspaper and TV or something like that, right? They don't care about the king. They don't care about entering the kingdom. They don't believe in faith in Christ. They're not into it. 
And then there are some people that are actually openly hostile to Jesus Christ. Really? You know, we could go to lots of different places around the world where Muslims have the upper hand and are reigning. You go out and proclaim Jesus Christ is king. He is God the Son. Find out what they'll do. They are violently opposed to him. They do not want him and they will not have him. And so you see the same responses today. In fact, you may be here. You could be apathetic. Perhaps you're here and you're almost here against your will. And you're aggressively against Christ. These people basically say, you know what, we've got to design our spirituality. We're happy that the way things are. We don't want to change and we're certainly not going to celebrate your son. Thank you very much. You know, the day may come where I, I might be interested or I might find myself in need of true spirituality, but right now what I've got going is working for me, and I think I'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Well, with this rejection, the killing and the abuse of his own servants, look at verse 7. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Because this might look like, well, you just denied an invitation to go to the wedding. No big deal, right? No. This was seen as rejection and rebellion to the king himself. Their abuse of his men warranted him to move and to act and to bring judgment upon them. Justice is what we will call it. And you know what? In the history of Israel, in A.D. 70, this is exactly what happened. There was a general, a Roman general by the name of Titus. There was a Jewish rebellion. And Rome killed 1,100,000 Jews, many of which they literally were thrown off the walls off of Jerusalem, burned their city, destroyed their temple, and killed thousands of others throughout Israel as an act of judgment. It's that Jesus is just saying, you need to know that judgment will come for those who reject my messengers and reject my son. It will come and it is certain And verse 7, he spells it out. And it's interesting the detail that Jesus does because this is exactly what happens. Their city, Jerusalem, the very city in which he's teaching in, is burned to the ground. Now, this is super surprising. What takes place here in these next verses here is like totally going to catch everybody off guard here. No one would expect this. You'd think like kind of end of the story. But notice this. Verse 8, then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready. But those who were invited were not worthy. So this is what I want you to do. I want you, verse 9, to go, therefore, to the main highways. And as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Whoa. They're like, what are you talking about? Here's the king. He's got his palace. He's got this huge feast. You're going to invite just anybody? And how he says there in verse 10, he says, Those slaves went out into the streets, and they gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. He speaks it in such a way as if they are to understand anybody. Yeah, like good, nice people, kind of folks just kind of doing their job and staying out of trouble and generally moral citizens, to the parts of society like prostitutes and tax collectors and the worst of sinners. I mean, they are out there with their sin. He says, I want them to come. The servants are like, whoa, 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 whoa. People like this never come in. He says, I want them to come. You see, this is a picture of what God is going to do. He is going to bring a people who are not his people into his kingdom. Those who perhaps once were just out there, totally sinful, breaking his laws, disregarding God, involved in all sorts of wicked immorality, all sorts of sin, liars, thieves, 
And he's going to bring them into his kingdom for the celebration of his son. Well, the, the servants, as soon as the king speaks, they go out and they find all these people. They're gathering them together. And notice what it says in verse 10. The, the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. And let me tell you what would happen here. Weddings were great festive uh, times. And they, we even have some examples in history that if you were to come to a great celebration or a feast at a, for a king in a kingdom, they would actually give you garments to wear. And this would especially be need needed for folks that are like, you know, impoverished. They have nothing. They're marginalized. They're out there in society. When they literally would come, you mean like the king wants us to come to what his party? Really? And they come. They would be given these vestments and these robes that they would put on. Perhaps they would be white because white was the picture uh, symbolized joy and celebration and cleanness and purity. And so these riffraff of society, they're coming from everywhere. They're given these garments as they come in and they put them on. And that way you would never know anybody's economic status. You would really know didn't, their past didn't matter. Where they came from didn't matter. What mattered is that they were now clothed with, with what the king had given them. They were now at the king's party. They were here to celebrate the sun. You could just imagine the great joy as they'd receive this vestment. Perhaps it was the nicest thing they'd ever even had. It's put on. Remember, like in Luke chapter 15, you got the parable of the lost son. Remember when the lost son finally comes to his senses? And remember, he comes back home. What does the father do? He actually, in Luke 15, he gives him the very best robe and he puts it on. He's like, yes, yeah, you're a miserable wretch right now. Your clothes are all tattered. I'm covering you with my clothing, the very best that I have. Well, the hall is filled. All these folks are all these nice garments. I mean, it's exactly the way it was supposed to be, except these are people that were never expected to be there. It's exactly what God is doing. When the Jewish people rejected Jesus, God said, I want my kingdom full. And just like it was prophesied in the book of Hosea, you know what? In the book of Hosea says, I'm going to have people who are not my people. I will Bring them to myself. They will be beloved because of me. So you have, to, you have to see this scene here. And this is just a great scene of celebration here. The, the Jewish people, they're like listening to this. They're like, wait a second. The people that are invited and the people that said they'd come to the kingdom and the celebration of the king, that's us. And now he's like, who in the world? He couldn't be talking about Gentiles, non-Jewish people, could he? But indeed he is. You see, if you're going to be rightly related to God, you're going to experience true relationship with him. You've got to rejoice in God's son. You've got to respond to God's call. His call is still out there today. Come. It doesn't matter your background or your sin. You just leave it, repent, turn, change of mind, turn from it. Come to me. Just come. I don't care what you were doing. Stop. And I want you to enter into the joy of the king himself. If you're going to be rightly related with God, it's not about you designing it on your own. It's about coming and responding to the call to believe in Christ. Let me give you a third aspect that we have to highlight, and this is huge. And that is to receive and reveal God's righteousness given in Christ. There's something taking place here where these people are listening. They're like, what in the world is Jesus talking about? But what he says next is going to throw them for a huge curveball. In fact, what he says next is critical for every single person who considers themselves to be a Christian to strongly consider. Because you have to receive and reveal God's righteousness given in Christ. Let's look at it. 
and we'll talk about it. Verse 11. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. So the king came in and, and this was what happened. People would be in the middle of the festivity. They'd be eating and the king would literally make an appearance. And of course, he'd see everybody all decked out with these gowns that he actually provided him. I mean, they all would kind of look pretty similar. They look like this is a huge party and we are clothed in, in the wealth of the kingdom. And he's looking around and he notices one person not dressed in wedding clothes. This would be pretty obvious. There's one guy that comes in and he looks like he's been working in the field all day. There's one guy that comes in and looks like he's been fixing his car all Saturday morning and he doesn't have the wedding clothes on. Everybody else does. It's going to be he's going to be standing out like a sore thumb. Everybody else is dressed in white, you know, and he's got his blue jeans with holes. And he's got grease on his side and dirt on his face. And what's going on here? And the king goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Verse 12. And he said to him, friend, how in the world did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. You see, the king provided the clothes to wear. Do you think the people that were out there, whatever they were doing, Tax collecting, just living life. Some were just flagrantly sinning. Do you think they were dressed for the wedding? No. The king gave them what they needed. But there's one guy that goes, oh, white's not my color or whatever. I, I don't need it. I don't, I don't care. I know I'm, I'm, I'm my own man. I do things my own way. You don't tell me what to wear or what to do. I'll do it on my own. I like being here at the kingdom. You know, I'm, I'm kind of my own guy. I'm comfortable in my own skin, right? I'll... I'll that's fine. You keep it. I don't want it. I don't want it. I'm good. I'm good. Where's my food? I'm glad to be here at the party. And the king says, you. And it's pretty obvious who he's talking to. He's the only guy not wearing the white gown. How in the world did you get in here without the clothing I provided for the wedding feast? And he is what? Speechless. He can't say a word because he knows what's in his heart. Now, this whole idea of this his clothing and why is he is it is this like a fashion police deal like hey you're not dressed correctly this isn't going to work is that what's going on here no jesus is highlighting something that is critical for every person to understand the garment that would be given the wedding clothes is representative of the clothing that we have in christ we speak of it literally as christ's righteousness when jesus christ comes to the earth he absolutely perfectly fulfills all of the law. His character is without blemish. He is without sin and he fulfills and does all that the law commanded. He is what we call righteous because he's done everything that God commanded. He is then because he's the God man in a position to give his righteousness. It's literally a counting term to impute his righteousness onto those who believe. He actually transfers that into their account so that those who believe in him are considered righteous. They are clothed with his character. They have on the robes of righteousness that comes from Christ himself. You absolutely have to have Christ and be united with him. Else you are like a guy showing up to the king's wedding feast and going, I'm going to do it my way, but I, I'm certainly going to consider myself a part of this wedding party. And that's what's taking place here. Let me just tell you how shocking this is to many people. 
Most people think that you just go and you attend church. You call yourself a Christian, whether because you think you were born in the United States or your parents were Christians or whatever. You think it's popular. But you absolutely have to believe in Christ. Righteousness comes by faith. Faith in Christ. This guy is trying to do it on his own. What's going to happen to him? Well, you just have to look at verse 13. What does God really think about designer spirituality? Verse 13. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you are truly a Christian, that means that you have believed upon Jesus and you accept his righteousness as your own. There is a, I absolutely need you. I am not, I'm a mess. I need you to clothe me with your character and your righteousness. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul uh, develops this theme. He says in chapter 6, verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, okay, people who are having sex outside of marriage, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, idolaters, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If that is you, that is your lifestyle, let me just tell you on the basis of Scripture, you can't be in heaven. You cannot be in the kingdom of God because it's literally spelled out. Those people, people that do that, you're not in God's kingdom. Unless, verse 11, he says this, and such were some of you. Yeah, that used to describe you. You were effeminate. You were immoral, an adulterer, homosexual, whatever it might be. You were a drunkard, a reviler, a liar. You stole things. He says, and such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. That once was a part of your life, but now you've been united with Christ. You've been literally clothed with his character and his righteousness and you are now clean and right and you are in God's kingdom, not on the basis that you lived a good life, but on the basis that Jesus lived a perfect one and you're believing solely in him. It's kind of like Galatians 3.27 where Paul says, For all of you who have been baptized into Christ, identified with Christ, you have clothed yourselves with Christ. He is your garment. He is your, like the wedding clothes that he's speaking of. And when you come to the book of Revelation, in chapters 6 and 7, you see people who are clothed in these garments of righteousness that are glistening white. Because the wearer of those, it's a symbol that you've been forgiven. And you're a part of him. Now, when he says, if you do not have those clothes on, do you see that here in verse 13? What happens to them? The king said to the servants, bind them, hand and foot, throw them into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is a phrase that Jesus uses often to speak of the place of eternal judgment, i.e. hell. Now, hell, come on. We're modern. We don't believe in things like that, Right. People don't even want to talk about hell. In fact, it's not popular now in many churches to even mention sin, judgment, and hell. Oh, how depressing. Come on. Get enough bad news. Tell me something to make me happy and just keep me laughing, right? Keep me entertained. Don't talk about things like hell. And yet, Jesus always wanted to make it clear. If you simply will not receive me and come my way, 
There is judgment coming, whether you are apathetic or you're aggressively against me. Some people are going to recognize the name of Marilyn Manson. Okay, he's a He's the leader of this heavy metal group. Probably most of you are not really into Marilyn Manson. He, is, he goes by that name, Marilyn Manson. That's the name of his heavy metal group. Uh, his real name is Brian Warner. Get this. He went to a Christian school all his life. Let me tell you what he thinks about hell. He's completely rejected the faith. He thinks it's a bunch of garbage. He, he writes songs that are so vile and so against Christ and, and the faith. This is what he said in an interview about hell, laughing. I'm going to go. I'm going to say it would probably be more comfortable place for me because everyone I know would be there. And I wouldn't really be allowed to do anything in heaven that would be any fun. That's his point of view. I don't really want to be there. I want to be in, I want to be in hell. I don't want to be in heaven. Let me tell you just what we can briefly learn about hell. Hell means exclusion. You see that in verse 13? You're cast out. Hell means darkness. You never see the light. You are always permanently away from it. And hell me involves anguish. There's a weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so Jesus says, verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called. Many hear the call. Come, rejoice, believe in Christ, experience peace, joy, happiness, fulfillment, purpose in life. The fruit of the Spirit, come, receive me. You can be freed and emancipated from your sin. Believe in me. Many are called, but few are chosen. This call is what theologians call the general call. It goes out. It's going out presently. It's going out throughout the world. It is an invitation to come and be a part of the kingdom of God, to rejoice in the Son, to come His way, to be clothed with His character of His Son, the character of Christ, His righteousness. Many are called, but few are chosen it's it's like right in this one verse we have human responsibility if you do not come into the kingdom of heaven it's because you are responsible for rejecting christ and his call that is your choice and you are making it there's all sorts of people that are going to be in hell and they will know i didn't want christ and i didn't want him on his terms and they rejected him and they faced those consequences But here's something, it's as if like the curtains of God's interworkings are drawn back. And for just a glimpse, we see how powerful God is. He says, many are called, but few are chosen. You see, those who believe God actually is working in human hearts to draw you to himself. So you look like in the book of like Ephesians chapter one, you see that this inner working happens actually before the foundation of the world where he literally draws people to himself. He chooses them. Or another term that he's going to use when it gets to Matthew 24, he just calls them God's elect. Because God is the one who brings about faith. So how do you know if you're really one of God's chosen? He says, verse 14, few are chosen. How do you know? By what you're doing with the Son. You see, the chosen are those who are rejoicing in the Son. They're responding to his call. And they have received and revealing God's righteousness. Not perfectly, but we have a perfect Savior. And so the question I want to ask you is, have you put on the righteousness of Christ? Are you clothed in him? Let me just tell you my my deep concern. My deep concern is as a pastor, we'll have a lot of people 
that, yeah, I want to be a part of God's kingdom. Certainly I want to be a part of the church, but they've never truly received Christ. They like fellowship. They like what fellowship is doing in the community and what fellowship is starting to do around the world. Cool, like lots of nice people around here. But they've never truly placed their faith in Jesus and received his righteousness. You can't come with self-stylized designer spirituality. God says it will not work. I will not have it. And so the invitation goes out today. Come. The wedding feast is ready. The kingdom is available. Come. Believe in Christ. You know what the Great Commission is, friends? We're to go throughout all the nations. We're to make disciples. We are literally inviting people, it doesn't matter your background, your prior belief system, to come and to be a part of the kingdom of God. You see, in the day of designer spirituality, God makes it clear that relationship with him comes only through believing in his son. There is but one way, and Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, this morning we're going to have a special privilege of hearing from someone who's just experienced God's hand in their life. And I'm going to ask if Ariel uh, Bragg, if she would just come up here. I'm looking for Ariel here. I'll get the mic here. She's going to share a little bit about what God has been doing in her life. I'll tell you, it's just such a special privilege to have you come and share this morning, Ariel. Um, Okay. I was raised in a Christian family, and we attended church on Sundays, and and I even attended um, some youth group periodically. And I believed in Jesus Christ. I just never really knew what it meant to have a relationship with him. Um, When I was was eight, um, I lost my father, and then several years later, um, I lost my great uncle that I was really close to. And And this was really hard for me um, because I had a rocky relationship with my stepdad um, on top of that. And so, but in the midst of this, God blessed me um, with my brothers. And um, it it was tough when I went off to college in Florida because it was 1,200 miles away from my family. And um, on weekends, I remember driving home, be home uh, one day and drive back for class on Monday. So... Um, but then after graduating college, I married my, um, my best friend and my volleyball partner in one, and I gave birth to our beautiful baby girl, um, Kaylin, and I found an amazing job. So um, somewhere along the way, we were invited uh, to come to fellowship. And um, in the summer of 2008, we started attending service regularly and went to several uh, fellowship family uh, get together. So this is a time in my life that I actually felt close to God. It was, um, I was excited about him. He was, he was filling a void in my life um, that I didn't even know really that I had. I'd never been in the Bible much, and so it was powerful learning about his promises and finding out that he wants me actually to hand over my problems and fears to him. Um, around this time, um, is when I came to a scary realization that I, that I was relying on the fact or the idea that I was a good person, so I would be going to heaven. And that was, that was very sobering. That was not the case. Um, it, was, it was a new feeling for me to have an idea um, of how God 
a difference between having an idea of how God wanted me to be and actually wanting and longing to be close to him and follow him. Anyway, this continued through the fall and on into January of 2009. Then at the end of January, uh, something happened that, that really changed my life forever. And you might say that it was my family's 9-11. So um, I got a call from my mom. and oh, Sorry. Anyway, I, I got a call from my mom, and, and I heard things, some words that I will never forget. And she said that that um, she said the boys have been in an accident, and uh, Tyler is tending the car, and I can't find Hyatt or Scotty. And Scotty was um, was my brother's best friend. So um, I drove from Austin. Uh, I mean, from Waco to Austin, a lot faster than I should have probably, but. One amazing thing that still just I feel is I had a sense of peace and I didn't understand it. I mean, I remember on the way driving and thinking, why do I feel calm? I, it didn't make sense to me, but I just kept hearing in my head, you're okay. You're not alone. And, um, and I, I believed it. Um, well, by six, Sorry. By six the next morning, um, Hyatt had passed away, and um, my brother Tyler, my youngest brother, um, his legs were shattered, and, and the surgeon had operated that night and placed steel rods in his legs. And um, their best friend Scotty was he was in a coma in, in ICU with serious brain injury. So um, before we had really come to terms with this. My grandmother was also killed in a car accident several months later. So that, um, but as painful as this time was, I do, I do, um, I was reminded of God's kindness and mercy. I mean, I can picture my mom beside me in the hospital waiting room saying, we cannot be angry with God. We cannot be upset with the driver that caused the accident. Um, we're in a lot of pain right now, but Hyatt isn't. And we have Scotty and we have Tyler. So uh, we found comfort in the fact that Hyatt and Scotty had both accepted Christ. And um, although we had, a, my husband and I and my daughter had attended church here several months prior to all of this, only several months, uh, he spoiled us. I mean, he brought meals and called us to check on us and um, came to visit us. Anyway, um, fellowship has been like a family. Um, not only during these tragic times, but um, when we had our second daughter, Tegan, and um, I mean, Matt even came 6 a.m. when I just had a, a surgery to remove some cancer from my thyroid recently. I mean, they were just, you're always here for us. And I realized that it's obvious um, that God had been preparing and strengthening me through these trials. Um, so they wouldn't get the best of me. I mean, he opened my heart and he gave me a glimpse of what it what it was to be, what it feels like to know him. And he surrounded surrounded us with a support system that's been there with us the whole time. So, um, it, his grace truly has no end. And mere months after ta- the accident, Tyler came to fellowship with us one Sunday, and 
Thomas Aguilar approached him and talked to him and prayed with him, and he accepted Christ that day. I mean, just, it was, that was amazing. That I mean, that, that made my it just made my heart happy. So this this is just an amazing testimony of how or testimony of God's sovereignty. Um, and I wouldn't want to go through these losses again. And I know that future holds lots of joy and maybe a couple more sorrows. But I've experienced peace um, through God and and through this church. And, and I know God will always see us through. So, thank you. Well, wow, thank you. Oh, thank you very much. That's awesome. That invitation is still here. Come. All here are weary and heavy laden. Jesus says, I'll give you rest. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you and thank you for your goodness and faithfulness. You have spelled it out so clearly in your word what real relationship with you is about. It's about believing in Jesus, receiving his righteousness, being clothed with him. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who has never put their faith in you, they are still going it alone or making it up as they go, they would just pray with me and say right now, Lord, I I finally understand. I turn from self and sin. I believe that Jesus truly died and paid the penalty for my sin, and I, I trust him. And I believe because he rose from the grave that I can have life and forgiveness in him, both now and for eternity. Lord, for all of us, may we find ourselves clothed with the character of Jesus. May we willingly identify with him, confessing our need and celebrating his goodness today and forever. We pray in Jesus' name.